This morning, I have a lot to share with you. If you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, you can go ahead and, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're actually going to try to make it all the way through chapter 8 this morning as we look at this subject together. Last week, I started a brand new series called Think Big. And for those of you that were with us last week, you know some of the principles that we talked about last week. I talked to you about the issue of a big faith and how to have big faith personally and how to have a big faith in your life corporately as well. And so I'm going to continue that series for the next several weeks. And while we walk through this series, Think Big, together, I'm going to bleed in or drip in some of the plans for the relocation in the building. In case you're not aware, uh, we, we are in the process of purchasing 50 acres at the intersection of Bandera and uh, West Northern Avenue. Um, it, it's just a, it's a huge deal. It's, just a, it's a God deal as far as the price. And so uh, it, it's 50 acres, and so we'll take a, uh, a portion of that land and we'll build a church there, and then we'll develop around there. And so this is a big task. It's a big task for a church our size, uh, fully built out. It'll be a little bit over 80,000, 85,000 square feet. And because the task is so large, we're going to have to do it in phases. And so phase one uh, will be about 40,000 square feet. Uh, it'll be able to hold all of our week-end ministries, Saturday night and children and all of that other stuff. Weekday ministries in phase one will still be done here. And so I know with a project this large, sometimes there's rumors that go around. There's talk that goes around. Sometimes there's inaccurate information because the task is just so large. And so, so I just want to be clear as we walk through this series, Think Big Together, is just help you understand the philosophy and why we're doing this and why we're building this. One of the things that's going around is some people have been worried they're going to lose their service, like especially Saturday night. And so I told the Saturday night people that when we relocate to the new location, we're still having Saturday night. And so they like stood up and called me blessed and they were like happy and clapping and all that other stuff. And so we're still going to do some multiple services because we're going to have to because it's about 1,200 seats and, and multiple services are good because not everybody works the same schedule. And so but the reason that we're doing this, and one of the main reasons we're doing this, it, just, it was driven home to me this last week. You see, there's a lot of surveys, there's a lot of statistics out there that we're still a Christian nation, right? And so they do these surveys, and maybe you've heard of some of them, I've heard of some of them. And so they'll do these surveys, and they'll say, you know what, 87% of Americans believe in God, and 87% of the Americans are believers. Or it can be as high as, I've heard, as high as 95%. And then we look at our society, and we look at some of their actions and some of how they practice and some of those other things, and it can cause us to push back, right? It can cause us to wonder, are we really a Christian nation, or are we a post-Christian nation? And to where we're moving farther and farther away from, from biblical beliefs and biblical practices and all of those other things. And so, so oh, for a year, George Barna... Uh, a guy that does a bunch of surveys, has been working on a survey, and he's, he's just pushed in or he's pressed into that number because he's wanted to know, are we a post-Christian nation or where are the, where are the, where are the top post-Christian cities? And so they came up with a metrics of about 15 questions, and they started surveying our nation. And they started asking them questions. You see, it wasn't good enough for them to be able to let someone say, yes, I believe in God, because Barna and his group understood it's not only beliefs, but it's practice. Do you practice what you believe? That's what, that's what the measurement is. And so that's where they built their, their, their measurement out of or their matrix out of. And so they began to ask questions. Uh, do you read your Bible da daily? Do you read? Do you, do you, do you take Scripture, apply it? Is, is, is faith important to you in your life? Do you give, did you give any money last year to a local church? Are you involved in ministry in a local church? Are you tied to a local church? Are you a spectator? Are you a participant? 
Uh, are you involved in a life group? And so they had all of these types of questions, and they went through, and they found out that we are rapidly becoming a post-Christian nation. And out of it, they determined the top 100 post-Christian are most irreligious cities in America. Staggering statistics. I was shocked to learn and really grieved that Pueblo, Colorado is in the top 100 of the most irreligious, lost, post-Christian cities in our nation. I'm like, seriously? That's happening in my town? Where my church is? Oh, and we didn't just barely make the list? We're number 37. Yeah. We probably would have been higher up on the list, because of, but because of population, population density, they lumped us in with Colorado Springs. We expand, not for a bigger building, not for better buildings. We expand, and we reach, and we give, and we serve because this community desperately needs us. This is not about us. This is about a community that is dying and going to hell. This is about an irreligious community, and some of them are your family members, your relatives, some people that you work with, some people that you go to school with. And listen, I'm telling you, for such a time as this, God has placed this church in a community that desperately needs a people group, desperately needs people that love him, that are devoted to him, and understand it is about expanding the kingdom. It is about reaching people for Christ and opening up more seats, not to make it more comfortable for us, but to open up more seats so more people can come into the kingdom, more people can accept him, more people can experience him and worship like you guys did this morning. That's why we do what we do. And so when we look at this topic of today, I know this topic makes a lot of people a little bit uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about think excellence. In other other words, think excellence in the area of your money, in the area of giving. And so I know there's people, listen, I, I get it, I understand. There are people that think, you know what, a pastor should never talk about money, right? I mean, maybe not you, but they're out there. I hear from them, and they're like, you know what? A pastor should never, never, never talk about money. And so they'll push back and say, you know what? This issue of money, it's a private matter. It's just a personal matter. But you know what? I need to tell you, Jesus didn't see it that way, and the Apostle Paul didn't see it that way. fact is, when you look at the teachings of Christ, Jesus talked more about money than any other subject. He talked more about stewardship and finances and resources, more than he talked about faith, more than he talked about prayer, more than he talked about miracles, more than he talked about healing. Fact is, when you look at Jesus' sermons that he preached, two-thirds of his sermons were about this issue of stewardship or resources or money. If I followed his rhythm of preaching, that would mean every three weeks, once a month, I'd be talking about this issue of money. When you just look at Scripture in its totality, you find that over 2,000 Scriptures in the Bible are related to this issue of money and stewardship and, and how to handle it. Now listen, I, I understand because I wasn't raised in church. Well, very seldom. And so I had a dad, and he would always talk about the church and say the reason we don't go to church is because that pastor, those preachers, all they want is what? 
All they want is your money. That's all they want. That's all they talk about. And so if, if this is your first week here and you're one of those people, and you're saying, I knew it. I showed up at that church, and that's what this guy's talking about. He's talking about money. <laughs> well, come next week. <laughs> the last time I did a series on money was like four years ago. And so the reason that money in, the, in talking about this is so personal is because money is so emotional. Very few people can talk rationally about money. Fact is, I tell young couples when I do premarital counseling, I says, you know what? There's three things that you guys need to learn to get right, and if you get if you get these three the, these three things right, it will it will greatly help your marriage, because these are the three things that that usually divorce happens. These are the three things that usually couples fight about throughout their whole married life, and and the three things are this: are sex, money, and in laws. <laughs> Everybody laughs at the in laws. It's like, yeah, we know. And so in case you're one of those people that are getting really, really nervous about me bringing up this topic of, of money and, and resources and all this, let me, just, let me just real quickly set you at ease. The first thing is this. We've already taken up the offering. Okay? <laughs> so I didn't move the offering from the front to the back or to the end of the service to kind of guilt you into this and kind of pressure you into this. I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't do that at all. And so another thing is I don't know what anybody gives. That information is not available to me. When I became senior pastor here, that is the first thing that I put in place. I said, I never, never, never want to know how much anybody gives. I, I just, I don't think I should know that. And so I don't have that information. So if you're sitting there and you go, oh, I'm worried he's talking about me. You know what? I don't know how much you give. Even if someone tries to tell me, occasionally people will try to tell me how much they give. And you know what? I, I tell them, you know what? I don't want to know that. In fact, is now with online giving and, and, and you can go get your giving statement online, uh, we don't even send those statements out anymore. And so very, very few people know how much anybody, really there's only one person, an administrator, that has to administrate that. The other thing is absolutely no guilt. This is a God-ordained project, and he will raise up the people. He'll raise up the people to give. My trust is in him. And he'll do it. When I look back over my Christian life, and I didn't have a strong heritage of going to church like many of you do. And, and I look at some of those sermons, and maybe you've had those game-changer sermons. Maybe you've had those life-changing sermons that, that just, just something clicked. You know what one of them was? A giving sermon. And Karen and I, up to that point, fought a lot over money. Because my trust was in money and it was an idol and all of this other stuff. And it was like a game changer to where I viewed money totally different as, as a steward and a manager. And everything changed for us. Listen, let me tell you something. If I hadn't changed my view of my trust is not in money and, and uh, from money to him, to God, I would have never come to Pueblo, Colorado to plant this church. I'm telling you, it is critical for you to understand this. So I just want to give you three things. 
Out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is how Paul dealt with the issue when he spoke into the life of a church there in, 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 in Corinth. And, and just a little bit about Corinth. Uh, uh, well, the church, the Corinthian church there in Corinth, it was a very affluent church. It was a very wealthy church. It was a very rich church. They had a lot of new believers coming in, so very few people gave. Very few people understand this issue of stewardship and money. And so Paul began speaking, and he was like a mentor to this church. And he sent several letters. We, we, we believe he sent three letters to the church in there in Corinth, and, and two are recorded in Scripture, and, and, or the Bible, and, and one is, most theologians believe, is just lost, and so, so he's writing into their church, and, and he's talking to them about this issue of stewardship and money, and so you're just going to have to determine for yourself, are your views of money American or biblical? In fact, is you have to make that decision in every area of your life. Are your views more American, Western, or your views biblical? So the first thing of this about, about resources and about money is this. The world's attitude towards possessions is materialism. The world's attitude towards money, towards possession, is really an issue of materialism. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, this is kind of the focal passage, is kind of the focal thought, and he writes this, he says, since you excel in so many ways, you excel in your faith, and so he's complimenting the church, and, and, and you have some gifted speakers, and that's wonderful. You've got knowledge, and you're growing in knowledge. And, oh, man, enthusiasm, enthusiasm is like off the charts good. And, and your love from us, that, that's good. And he says, but I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. In other words, Paul is speaking into their life and saying there's some good things going on in your life. But this issue of possessions, this issue of money, he says, i got to tell you, you're not giving. And you're not, you're not viewing it in a biblical way. He goes on in verse 8 out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he says, and I say this not as a command. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Now stop right there. This is just this is totally, totally for free. Out of that verse proves out you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. It is true, you can give without loving someone. You can give for ulterior motives. But you know what the Bible teaches? You cannot love someone without giving. You were created to give. You know that when you fell in love for the first time, right? You'd empty out the bank account. I mean, you'd do anything to impress her, right? You cannot fall in love. You cannot love someone without giving. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, might, so that you by, by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. In other words, they decided as a church, we're going to help the Jerusalem churches. They're poor and they're desolate and they're having problems. And so they started this campaign. They started this effort to help them. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of, okay, so here we go, out of what you have. And so Paul is telling them, you know what, give out of what you have, not what you don't have. He said, in other words, you're not excelling in this area of giving, and Paul uses the word grace ten times in this, in this chapter. And it's always, when he uses it, it's always referring to human generosity. See, Paul understood human generosity was driven by God. Generosity is a capacity inspired by God's grace that always leads to giving. See, the greatest temptations we have is what? This issue of materialism. It's what wars against us. It's what fights against us. It was the same three tempt temptations that Adam and Eve had in the garden, right? 
You know what? We're still dealing with those same three temptations now. The lust of the flesh, which is this issue to, to feel, to touch, or, or I deserve to feel good, that thought. The lust of the eyes is, a, is a, the desire to have. I mean, if it feels good, like, do it. And the pride of life is this issue of possessions to where, to where I, I, I want to be admired and I want to be loved and I want to be idolized. And the writer of 1 John in 2.16, he writes these words and he says, For all that is in this world, so here he goes, the materialism, it's of this world, it's really deeper than that. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from God, is not from the Father. But it is from the world. See, the world's view of materialism is, or the world's view of money is materialism. See, the world will tell you, you give your money away, you're, you're foolish. You made it, it's yours, you earned it. It wasn't given to you by God. It wasn't a blessing. It is yours. You earn it, you keep it, you hoard it, you store it up. And fact is, when you look at these three, th- these three things, lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life, do you realize marketing people, advertising, gets these principles deeper than we do? Because they know that if they can do a commercial and they can tie into one of these, you will buy their product. I mean... Check it out for yourself this afternoon or this evening when you're watching TV as a family. You can watch a toothpaste commercial and you can, or a car commercial or whatever, and you can quickly figure out, is it less of the flesh, less of the eyes, or pride of life? That's why you can watch a toothpaste commercial and you're like, I don't even know what product they're selling. I just want it. Right? I mean, you're kind of confused about the whole deal, and that's why, because they get this, they understand this, that we all deal with this temptation of materialism. And if they can tie into that, guess what? They got you. They understand this more than the church does. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, most American churches do not excel well in the area of giving. What would happen if we changed that? What would happen if we got this, if we understood that we're just stewards and we're just managers of what he has given us? What would happen if it wasn't a small group of people that gave and a very large group of people who didn't give? What would happen if we understood what it meant to be a part of a local body, where God has placed us, the need for this community together? We buy into this thought that we never have to give it any away. We never have to share 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the Father's love abide in him? Now, how, how does one see the needs of a church, the needs of a community, the things that we are doing? Last night we had uh, our, our missionary here from, from Haiti. Uh, who's heading up the whole orphanage that we're building in Port-au-Prince. Right now we have a mission team in Denver, about 10, 10 people, that's all we could take, and, and they are immersed with the homeless in the inner city of Denver, and, and I mean they're eating the same food as the, as the homeless would eat, and they are saturated. It's a, it's a strong gospel ministry. There's some things that we'd like to learn from them, and, and I mean they're eating the same thing they ate last night. I think they had oxtail and and chitlins and fried fish and some and and they're ministering to them. The things that we do in the community with the homeless and the poor, the things that we do of spreading the gospel. A number of people are getting saved here. The needs that we have. How can someone see those needs? Never, never, never. 
be moved to, to give. See, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 28, he writes these words and he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so this tells me that the scripture says that one of the reasons why we work so hard is so that we can, we can share. That as he prospers us, that a portion of our income goes back to him through the local church. So what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 too, he says on the first day of every week, when you, when you gather for worship, part of worship is giving. Part of worship is giving a portion of your income back to him. And, and so on the first day of every week, each of you, so that tells me we should all partner with this. We should all be a part of this, is to put something aside and store it up. In other words, you're intentional with your giving. It's something that you've thought about. It's something that you prayed about. And he goes on, and he says, as he may prosper, so there'll be no collecting when I come. So this means that we're not all prospered the same. You see, a lot of us in, in American beliefs, when, when, we, when we think about giving, we think about a dollar amount. See, Jesus and Paul, in fact, is the Bible never talked about a dollar amount because we've all been prospered, we've all been blessed differently. But what he does talk about is percentage giving. That there's a, a percentage that you give back to him. So the first thing is the world's attitude towards this issue of money is materialism. God's attitude towards possession is this issue of stewardship. In other words, that, that, that we're a manager, we're a steward of what he has given us. I mean, when I got this, when I understood this years back, it was like a game changer to me. I saw my resources differently. I saw my things differently. I saw my relationships differently. I began to picture everything differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1, uh, Scripture says this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, by the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Now, here's an interesting thing. So we, we talked about the church there in Corinthians, uh, in, the Corinth, in, in Corinth, and it was a very affluent church. It was a very wealthy church. It was a very educated church. And then all of a sudden, he, he, he makes a contrast between the church in Macedonia. Now, the Macedonian church was, was, was like a polar opposite of the church there in Corinth. It was very, very poor. It was very, very needy. Yet, they're very generous. So, so he goes on. He said, well, let's compare the two. So, given amongst the churches in Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction. So, okay, so they're being persecuted. So we learned that about them. Their abundance of joy. But that's weird, but they still have joy. So they're being persecuted. They've got abundance of joy. And their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity that meant giving on their part. You know what this tells me? This tells me everybody ought to be giving something. In other words, what this tells me is, is you are never so poor and everybody in this room would be considered rich by world standards. But this tells me that you and I are never so poor that we cannot give. In fact, is God has promised. He's going to meet your daily needs. He's going to, he's going to give you daily bread. He's going to meet your needs, and he's going to give you enough to share with others. And so here's the crazy thing. When you look at the church there in Macedonian, they are poor. They are being persecuted. And they're giving, and they have joy. I'm telling you, I've done missions all over the world. Uh, Beatlestock, Poland, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Mexico, uh, Peru. 
I mean, and I've seen the poorest of poor. And those of you that have shared in missions, and those of you of God, and those of you that have seen that, you know this is true. Some of the happiest, most joyful people I've ever met are the most poor in extreme conditions. That they have more joy than most Americans that have an abundance of stuff. And Paul's telling this poor church that they can be generous with their resources. And that we're never at the point that we could say, because a lot of people say, you know, wait a minute. When God makes me Bill Gates rich, I'll give. Right? When I win the lottery, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me that, when I win the lottery, I'll build the building personally. Let me tell you something. If you're not giving with the little you have, you'll never give when you have much because a check will be too much. So I wondered about this principle in Scripture where Paul took this church. He took the, the church there uh, the, uh, in, in Corinth and, and then the church there in Macedonia, and he kind of compared them, one that had a lot and one that had little. And he, he brings his parallel and says, you know what? The one that has little is really outgiving the church that has much. And so I'm, I'm like, I wonder, if that's, I wonder if that's still true today. I don't know if you have questions like that. I have questions like that all the time. So I started, I started looking for surveys. fact is, there's a recent survey just done in our nation. Now, this was giving to, to charity. And so they took the 20, 20% of the wealthiest Americans, surveyed them, and they took 20% of the poorest Americans and surveyed them. Here's what they found out in giving. 20% of the wealthiest Americans last year gave 1.3% of their income. 20% of the nation's poorest Americans gave 3.2% of their income. The poorest of poor in our country gave twice as much as the rich. Now, the wealthy, of course, their checks are bigger. But in this area of percentage giving, in this area of sacrificial giving, in this area of generosity... The poorest of poor were more generous than the wealthy. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says this, As for the rich in this present age, and that's really all of us, charge them, in other words, teach them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches. See, that was me before the game changer for me when I heard that sermon. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What a phrase. God provides us with things so that we can enjoy them. So it is not wrong to have a nice house. It is not wrong to have a nice car. It's not wrong to have an extra car. It's not wrong to go on a nice vacation. It's not wrong to to have nice things. It's not wrong to enjoy your money. God gave you money, part of your money, to enjoy. But as he prospers you, you are to give back a portion back to him. It's this issue of stewardship. It's this issue of managing the money that he has given them, given you to where you understand that a portion is already his. Listen, let me tell you something. I don't know if you know this or not. You don't really ever own your home. You don't really ever own your car. You don't really ever own anything. You're a steward. I don't care whether you've paid your house off, and I don't care whether you paid your, your car off. You don't ever really actually own it because guess what? When you die, someone's going to be living in your house. 
Someone's going to be driving your car. Someone's going to be hitting your old golf clubs one day. It's not really yours, right? You're just a steward of it. You're just a manager of it. And when you begin to look at life and materialism like this, I'm telling you, you, you will relieve all of your financial stress, all of your financial pressure when you understand it is His. And He blesses you with it. And you join in with Him and you steward it properly. Verse 18, He goes on, And they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In other words, if God has given to you abundantly, then give abundantly. Thus storing up treasures for themselves. Where are you storing up treasures? Not on earth, in heaven. See, we, sometimes we don't get this. It, it is true. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. As a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of what is truly life. You, you want to find joy? You want to find what is truly life? You get it. You understand that you are a steward. You're a manager. And a portion of your income, you just give back to him. There's only one thing that breaks greed, and that's giving. You break greed in someone's life, you won't break materialism in someone's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. In other words, Paul was saying you just you give out of what you have. I, I, I think there's a reason that, that a lot of people don't like to hear sermons on money is because sometimes the scripture is improperly handled. A lot of times there's just a lot of guilt. And when you look at Paul's method, he, he, he just told them the need. He just told them some principles. And he says, this church in Macedonia, this church that was just poverty, they, they really gave over the 10%. They, they really gave beyond their ability to give. In other words, this group, they were, they were given sacrificially. And I, I'll never forget, and just, just real quickly, um, when, we, when we built this building, and, or not built it, we renovated it, and when we bought it, it was just different times then. And, and so if you've come and you see overflow services and all these people, you say, ah, no big deal. But in the days when we, when we purchased this building, we renovated this building, we barely had 300 people join together as a church. The year before, we only had 42 families. What our administrator told us, told me, we only had 42 families that gave over $2,000 in the last year. And in like 17 weeks, people understood resources and understood stewarding. And they gave over $300,000 just to purchase. This building was purchased and renovated by great faith. And churches will use all kinds of gimmicks. And so you don't need to be nervous about this whole process. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I don't have a church background like many of you, but I've been told stories uh, of, about it. And so, so I promise you we're not going to put the red thermometer up here, right? You, ever, you guys ever been through churches that did that? And so they put the red thermometer, and they lift it up, and the preacher points at it and talks about it, and it's just, you just feel guilt and all that other stuff. We're not stacking bricks. We're not selling chairs. We're not selling parking places. We're not doing any gimmicks. We're not doing bake sales. We're not doing anything like that because the Bible tells me. Here's what the Bible tells. The Bible tells me that we give sacrificially out of what we have. And we just give to him. And so we're not going to use any gimmicks 
as we walk through this process. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, and their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor, taking part in relief of the saints. So this tells me, you know what? They gave voluntarily. They gave personally. Watch this, verse 5. And this, not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So there's some people, you know what? All they want to do is write a check. They don't want to serve. They, they, they just want to write a check. There's another group of people who says, you know what? We'll serve. We're just not giving any money. I mean, we'll serve, but we're not writing a check. And, but God wants both. Fact is, God doesn't want a handout. He wants your hand. He, want, he wants a partnership. The last thing about this issue of giving is this. Our motivation to give is because Christ sacrificed for us. I mean, God was a giver, right? And wouldn't you agree he has given nothing but his best for us? Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. I mean, he was Jesus co-equal with God. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh, and he came to this earth. He left heaven. He left the perfection of heaven. He left the beauty of heaven. He left heaven for us. And he was condemned. And he was crucified on a cross. Here's an unbelievable thought, an unbelievable thing. The book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah had a lot of messianic prophecy about Jesus coming. And so in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah starts talking about this Messiah who we know is Jesus. Messiah would come. He would be condemned to death. He would die on a cross. And he would die by, by, by crucifixion. And then it goes into extreme detail what happens to a person's body when they die by crucifixion. Fact is, I understand many medical doctors and medical people reading that scripture have met Christ because it, it's so exact and it's so precise about what happens to a body when it's crucified and the joints being dislocated, suffocation, and some of the other things. Now listen, stop right there. When Isaiah wrote this, that Jesus would come and be died by crucifixion on a cross, that was 720 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. When people wrote, read Isaiah, they didn't even know what this crucifixion stuff was. It hadn't even been invented yet. The Bible is accurate and the Bible is true and you can trust your life to it. And when you look at this, God is ne- has always given his very best to us. And because of that, we are rich in forgiveness and we are rich in hope and we are rich in fellowship. For God so loved the world that he gave and you were created to give. And he gave his only son. But whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He has given his very best to us. And I am asking you over the next several weeks, as many had started last week, and I ask you this same thing. I said, would you just pray about how much you should give so that we're able to pay cash for this this land, which is only $375,000, 18 cents a square foot, no big deal. Would you just pray? And that by the 1st of June, we should be able to have enough money to pay cash for this bill. We shouldn't have to loan a dime. 
and we've got about $60,000 worth of engineering costs that we're going to have to do and, we'll, uh, and design costs, and, and we're going to take that out of budget. We're going to renovate the, the youth room over there in the underground so that we can have a, a worship venue so that when you're in overflow, it doesn't feel like you're in timeout and you're being punished. It's not distracting, but it would be a worship venue, and we're going to start on that in June. And so all I'm setting before you is this. It, let me just tell you this. So last week in my sermon, I felt led and said, here's the deal. Here's the challenge. It was after the offering was taken. And it's the first time you guys heard, would you pray about, get a number, give it, we'll call it good. Would you like to know how much you guys have given so far? Yes? No? A little bit over $40,000 in a week. Telling you. Telling you. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray about a number and give it. For those of you who aren't given, who have never given, who have never intentionally given and been blessed by this ministry, would you start giving somewhere? Would you just pray about a percentage? I won't even give you one this morning. Would you pray about a percentage? And then... As he blesses you, as he prospers you, you increase that percentage. It's between you and God. But I'll, I'll just tell you this as your pastor. You cannot honor God and not give to the local church. He died for the local church. He didn't die for a parachurch organization. He didn't die for a mission organization. He died for the local church. Maybe you've never given yourself first to him. And that's where it starts, where you'd give your life to him and become a believer and enter into a relationship with him. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?